Today we're here on a Tuesday to welcome and honor our alumnus of the year. And the first thing I thought is important is to let you know what an alumnus is. Many of you have had the privilege of getting to hear several of our alumni, which is the plural of alumnus, speak to us. But some of you, this is somewhat new. So an alumnus is someone who attended our school and already graduated, simple as that. But to be the alumnus of the year, you have to have distinguished yourselves in other ways. This one is known for lots of really exciting things, but one that you might have seen is the roaming gnome. So we're going to start with a video that Senora Lee created about the gnome at Harbor Day School. Nice job, everybody, and thank you to our teachers who traveled to Tanzania and took the gnome with them, and also the gnome got to go to Peru, and I think the gnome also went to Italy, but maybe just didn't send a pictures too busy eating gelato and making pizza, uh, but that was very fun, and that gnome is famous to us and to the world um, because of Mr. Glick, who is here today, but he's done more things than just make a gnome look exciting. Uh, he, has all, he started by graduating from Harbor Day, and he was on gold, so that's super important, as we know. And then he went to high school. He went to some pretty impressive colleges, Harvard and Oxford, for his graduate degree. And then what I find especially impressive, and some of the adults in the room, I think, will think this, he literally worked on peace in the Middle East, so thank you for working with that, and also to help the economies of Peru and Venezuela, I think to varying success at this point, but we are very happy that he was helping with that. And I think he must have got a travel bug when he was doing that, because he then came home and started a company called Site 59, which was purchased by Travelocity, and he created the roaming gnome. But he did not stop there and rest on his gnome-filled laurels. He became the CEO of Foursquare, and Foursquare provides geotechnology for some companies that especially I know you up in the top like and use, like Snapchat, Twitter, Uber. Um, so I'm very excited that we all have the opportunity to learn from Mr. Glick today and very proud that he is a Harbor Day School alumnus. Hello. So 
it's a trip down memory lane to be here because I was in this exact hall, I was in gold, we had grandparents' day, all of these things are these traditions, track day, they, they all feel like yesterday for me. And there are so many memories that come back. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about memories, both wonderful and some memories that made me stronger from here that weren't as fun and how Harbor Day shaped me in ways and lessons that I still have used throughout my life. Uh, so this was me, age 12. Uh, that's 1981. And I was, I was a new kid. I came in at seventh grade. So does anyone here enter at seventh grade? Anyone here? Almost no, uh, one person, okay. So uh, how many entered in kindergarten or first grade? Okay, almost everyone. So imagine how I felt coming in as the new kid in seventh grade. I, I came from a public school, I wanted a better education, uh, and I didn't know anyone. And how was I gonna make my way in this new school? Everyone knew everyone else. My sister, Jennifer, who's here, had come in first grade, and so she was doing great, but I was this new kid. So right about there, my first week, we had PE class, and I was a new kid, I was nervous, I was kind of a klutz, I was 12 years old, and we were supposed to learn how to serve a volleyball underhand. But I was, I was kind of a klutz, and I hit the ball too hard, straight in the air, and maybe you can still see the mark in the ceiling, uh, and it bounced off the ceiling, and I was so embarrassed, because everyone was looking at me, I thought, what do I do? I started laughing. I laughed uncontrollably. And the gym teacher thought, he did that on purpose. And so I was sent to the dreaded blue chairs. <laughs> I was not off to a good start as the new kid. And uh, at the time, this was before Mrs. Johnson, it was Mr. Jones. And he was, a, he was an intimidating figure. He was very strict. And he warned me, no more stunts like that. I'm going to keep an eye on you. And over the next year, I wasn't really used to the kind of very structured environment that Harbor Day is. I'd come from a public school. Uh, I got sent to the blue chairs a few more times. Uh, and you know what? I needed to learn the lessons about understanding the rules and structure. Uh, at the same time, though, as I said, this is, this is me and my sister, Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer's here, right here. Hi, Jen. Thanks for coming. Uh, and, and so I, I was this, this new kid, and um, I, I also had a little bit of a rough time fitting in socially. I was the bottom of the pecking order. Everyone already had their friends. Um, and this is seventh grade. And for those of you who are in middle school, you might appreciate it. It's that time in life where you're figuring out who you are. And maybe it feels like which lunch table you sit at defines who you are. And I felt like I didn't fit in at any of the lunch tables. Uh, and it was a time, I think, before we're more conscious of these things now. But kids could be kind of mean to each other. There was a lot of teasing and pranking. It wasn't just aimed at me. Uh, I remember there was a time when almost every day one of the kids, often one of the girls, would go home crying because of teasing. And, and, but I, I felt particularly lonely because 
I was the bottom of the social order. I was the new kid. And, and so I started to develop kind of a sense of like, hey, maybe I'll just go get a book. Maybe I'll go find some peace. I used to even sometimes go out to the fields at lunchtime and just, just read a book and think and have some peace. Um, but I was trying to figure out how I fit in. So uh, how many uh, know Harry Potter? Everyone. So J.K. Rowling, who wrote Harry Potter, is one of my very favorite authors. Um, I have three kids now, and we read the books together. So if you know the story of Joanne Rowling, she always felt like an outsider. She wrote Harry Potter as a single mom on welfare, uh, and she never felt she fully fit in. But you know what she was able to do as a bit of an outsider is observe more, to be perceptive, to have empathy, to have a sense of character and courage and virtues, and, and that's all in the stories. But it comes from being a bit of an outsider and having a perspective. Um, so you all have a program here called Character Counts. How many have done something involving Character Counts? Uh, you know, I learned a lot of lessons here that you're getting through these Character Counts things. One of them is a sense of empathy. Uh, so how many know the word empathy? Have you ever heard that word? Oh, a lot of you, that's great. So empathy is being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, feel what they're feeling, and relate to them, and maybe want to help them, or at least understand them. And, you know, because I often felt lonely and I was searching for my place, I started reading a lot as a student here in seventh and eighth grade. I went into those library, uh, the library's still the same almost. And uh, I started reading about history and about people who were going through much more challenging things in their own lives throughout history. Um, I read about the African-American experience, about refugees coming to this country. My own grandparents fled World War II and Germany. Uh, they fled the Nazis. They saw the worst of humanity. And they came here as immigrants with nothing, and they still kept their faith. My grandmother always taught me, and uh, that ultimately people are good if you give them a chance. And she had come through the worst. But I, I understood more and more about how it felt to, to be an immigrant, to be a refugee, to feel outside. Um, and then I had a friend here who really gave me a sense of perspective that uh, whatever I was feeling, uh, I wasn't really alone. Um, so I had this friend, Leslie. Um, and Leslie was your age, um, and we were in school together here, and she was diagnosed with cancer, a form of childhood cancer. And while she was here, she went through radiation treatment after radiation treatment, and honestly, no one knew if she would be okay. Uh, so Leslie came through that, um, but she always seemed to me an inspiration because she was kind of the model of toughness to get through that, but also the kindest person you ever met. Um, so Leslie is now a lawyer in Newport. Her son just graduated from college, and Leslie is here. So Leslie, do you mind standing up? Thank you. Thanks. So the point here is that learning empathy 
Learning to value and listen to others is the kind of skill that serves you throughout life. And, you know, when you see a classmate who's feeling left out or maybe in pain, you know, this is your chance to practice the skill of empathy. And by the way, as you go out in the world, empathy is a powerful skill. It's even more powerful uh, than whether you know how to code. Uh, it's more powerful than learning accounting or something like that. It, this ability to connect with other people and learn from them is what makes a great leader, it makes a great business person, inventor to understand problems. So that's a skill that I was starting to build here um, and through that, that character counts kind of experience. Um, how many have ever uh, seen a movie with Anna Kendrick? Okay, or heard her songs. She's uh, my, my, my daughter's favorite singer. She always makes us play cups. Um, and so, you know, this quote from her, I, I, I find meaningful because it's often something in your life that puts you through a difficult patch that builds that sense of character Maybe you look at the world a little differently, but if you think about people like Steve Jobs or Lin-Manuel Miranda, people who are great artists or actors or creators or business people who invent something really innovative, they usually look at the world a little differently. In your computer lab, you have that old Apple poster, think different, but that was, that was Steve Jobs. He was an immigrant. He saw the world differently. And so some of the most interesting people often didn't feel like they fit in and that's okay, it gets better and you're building this strength and this character. Um, so another lesson I learned um, was, was extra credit. Now, I'm, I'm telling you some of the, the more uh, difficult times I went through, but there were so many joyous times here. It was, the education was so incredible here and we were all so lucky to have gone to a school like this, you were all so lucky. So there were these amazing teachers, Hal Hensler in science and Hafey in math, some of, the, some of you will remember these incredible teachers, uh, Mr. Vance in literature, uh, Mr. Lane Smith in grammar, who was very strict. Uh, and they were incredible teachers, and I was so fortunate to be here. Um, but my love was history. I, I told you I started reading books all the time, history books. And I came to eighth grade graduation. And you have to understand, I was obsessed with history. I would read college history textbooks for fun in seventh grade. That was kind of my idea of fun. So in eighth grade, we arrived at graduation, and I was probably sitting right about where you're sitting. Yeah, you. <laughs> right about there. And it was graduation day. And they have these prizes. They still have the prizes, right? And one of them was the history prize. OK, I had a 98 or a 99 average in history. I was sure that Mr. Jones, the history teacher, was going to call my name. But then someone else won the prize. And I remember going up after graduation to ask Mr. Jones, why didn't you consider me? I love history. And he said something to me that really stuck with me. He said, you know, you never once did the extra credit. Never once. And at first I thought, I was getting an A. I mean, why did I need the extra credit? And then, you know, it dawned on me that Mr. Jones was right, that it wasn't about winning the prize. It wasn't about 
the grade. It was about pushing yourself to be the very best person you can be. And I was resting on my laurels. I was taking things for granted. And it was a lesson I never, ever forgot when I went to Newport Harbor High School and then got into Harvard and Oxford. I always thought it's not about the grade. It's about what can I learn and how can I push myself to do something special? And that's a gift that Harbor Day gave me. Uh, and it's, it's one I never, ever uh, forgot. So I had some other happy memories. So this is 1982. Um, and remember, I, I started out as a seventh grader. I felt very alone. But over time, I made friends. Um, I became gold captain as an eighth grader. And I got taller all of a sudden. It just I sprouted. That happens to eighth graders sometimes. And, and so from feeling very alone, I suddenly had this football team. And you can kind of make it out. You can almost see it. Right here, there is a thick pad in my sock of note cards. And I had, suddenly I could throw a football really far, um, and I hadn't been really an athlete. And suddenly I discovered I was an athlete. And here was a team, and we had to beat blue. And so I had made up all these fancy pass plays, and they were on 100 note cards in my sock, and I kept pulling them out. And so we were losing. It was the last play of the game. And I pulled out this note card, and I said, we're going to run this play. There were five seconds left in the turkey bowl. We were down by six. And, uh, and this, is, this, this is the play. And I went back, and I threw a touchdown pass. And the team won, and gold jumped up and down. And you know, it wasn't about winning the game. It was about the thrill of being part of a team, preparing for something accomplishing something together. Uh, and it's much more than about a football game. It's about a skill that you learn throughout life, about cooperating and putting effort into something that matters. Um, all right, so I was invited here. I'm going to just give you five minutes on my company because um, I was invited because I'm a technology guy. So, um, so I'm going to uh, ask a few questions. But first, one minute on, on Foursquare. So we, I've been uh, CEO for a number of years, but the company is 10 years old. And it started as an app that people would use. As you went around the world, they would check in, which means you'd open your phone and you'd, you'd hit a button and Foursquare would know where you were. Maybe you were at the beachcomber at Crystal Cove. You know, maybe you were, anyone like that spot? It's a pretty good spot, right? Yeah, I gotta love it. And, and, and you wanted to record where you were, or maybe you, you know, you were at a store in Fashion Island. And maybe you were, you know, on a trip to Tanzania. And you wanted to log all these special places that you went. And so you would check in, and you would compete. It was a game, and you could earn coins. And if you checked in more than anyone else, you were the mayor. And you got these virtual coins. So that's how it started. But as the company grew up, it realized it had the best map, other than Google Maps, of the world. Because millions of people were marking 105 million places. And so when I arrived, I, I sort of thought, wow, we can do so much more with this. So let me, um, so now this is a group with kindergartners up to eighth graders. So I'm gonna ask, I'm kind of curious. So how many of you um, have your own smartphone? Just raise your hand. Wow, a lot, okay. How? How, you, you can put, okay, so how many, okay, so show of hands, how many eighth graders? 
Okay, how many seventh graders? How about sixth graders? Wow, okay, fifth graders? Any fourth graders? Wow, okay, third graders? Wow, okay, all right, interesting. Um, thank you, thank you for that. So, one more question. <laughs> thank you, teachers. How many have parents who limit your screen time? Okay. How many have parents who don't li limit your screen time? Wow, okay. We're gonna, <laughs> all right. Shh, all right. Okay, so these are some of the companies we help that maybe you've heard of. So, all right, uh, at risk of creating noise, but quietly, how many have heard of Uber? Okay, all right, so if you, if you, type, um, if you type a place like the Beachcomber uh, or San Juan Capistrano Mission or anything into Uber, that's, that's my company. We provide the list of places for pickup and drop off because we keep this freshest map of the world, 105 million places. Um, so how many have heard of Snapchat? Okay, almost everyone. So if you are taking a snap and it says, hey, you're at the Sunny Cafe and you get this little overlay, have you ever wondered, how does Snapchat know that I'm at the cafe to offer the right geofilter? That's us. That's what we do. We figure out where the phone is and tell them which place it is. And we also provide, if you swipe up, some content about that place from our millions of members, what they think of it, what to order. Um, how many have heard of Twitter? Okay, this is a very tech-literate uh, elementary school. Um, so uh, so if, you, if you tap, for those of you who use Twitter, this little location button, that's Foursquare. And we, we figure out where you are. Drama. Um, so we allow you to tag those, those places. Um, and then if you have, there are tons of Samsung phones. And one of the fun things we did with these is we took our map of 105 million places. And how many have heard of the term augmented reality? Okay, how many ever played Pokemon Go? Okay, that's Pokemon Go is augmented reality. I'm stirring you up. Um, so Pokemon Go, the little Pikachu would appear over the table, right? That's called augmented reality. It's looking at reality, but augmenting it with something over the top. So what we did for every Samsung phone in the world for, for 170 countries, we have ratings of 100 million places and information about them. So you can walk around with our technology and lift your phone and hit a button, the Bixby button, and as you walk down the street in Tanzania or you walk down the street in New York or you walk down the street in London or LA, it will overlay information about the places as you look at them. Uh, just the way a Pikachu would appear on the table during Pokemon Go. So that's the kind of stuff we do with our customers. Um, we're also in Apple Maps, look for the content. We help TripAdvisor tap you on the shoulder when you're traveling in Barcelona, and it says, hey, your friend Susan Johnson loves this little tapas restaurant around the corner. You have to go in there and you have to order the crab legs because Susan said so. And how does the phone know that you're near this place? It's because of our technology running in TripAdvisor. Um, so this is a little video about how the, the tech works, and it's kind of fun if you're into math. So what this is, this is a visual representation of the Mall of America, the biggest mall in the United States. And this is a week of people saying they're in the Mall of America. 
a billion times a year, 13 billion times people have told us where they are through checking in or tagging a tweet on Twitter or the like. So it's easy to pick out the Mall of America. What's really hard is to pick out the J. Crew store, which is one of 500 stores, and to know that you had just entered the J. Crew store. So the, the blue dots show the intensity of people saying they're at the J. Crew store, and we build this kind of heat map or fingerprint of every place in the world using Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and GPS. And, and you get a sort of cone of truth. So that blue cone of truth is the highest frequency, latitude and longitude, where Starbucks occurs. And when a phone enters that high frequency uh, mathematical cone, um, then we know you're at the Starbucks. And there are people who check in after they got their latte and walk down the street, and they're in pink. We discard those. Those are the outliers. The blue is the sort of cone of truth. So that's kind of a little bit how you, how you build technology that understands when the phone in your pocket or your purse walks in and out of 100 million places. And we can even tell different floors of different buildings. And all of this is fun, but the irony here is I've been in tech for 20 years. And although I learned to code computers in the little computer lab over here uh, on what they called a TRS-80, which is a really old computer, um, I'm not an engineer. But you know the liberal arts and the thinking and the human skills that I learned, the empathy that I learned about how to apply things and listen for problems here at Harbor Day, that's the stuff that, that makes me a good leader for this company. And we've grown almost 50% um, three years in a row. So this is kind of, I'm almost done with my talking about Foursquare. But this is a little sense of the data that is in the world that you all are gonna inherit. Like everyone here, the world is your future. You are this generation growing up with tech all around you. So the data, the magnitude of the data is kind of awesome and maybe creepy to some. We see three billion times a month that people walk in or out of a place in the world. It's an incredible amount of data about where people are going in the real world. And by the way, 90% of the economy is in the real world. Amazon, and all of you know who Amazon is, is 4% of all spending. That means the other 96% happens not online. Uh, the other, well, 10% happens online and 90% offline. So how do you build an ethical company? So one of the things that we think about every day, and this ties back to what I learned at Harbor Day, is a sense of ethics. And you know, running an ethical tech company now is really hard. If you read the news, people are worried about technology. They're worried about what it might do to all of you and worried about what it does to our society. Uh, we started out to build a platform that people around the world could use as an alternative to Google. That's why Uber and Samsung and Apple and all the companies love us. They don't want to be beholden to Google. But we also wanted to build something that was about people and making the real world better. At a time when so much of technology and so much of what is pushed at you is, hey, spend your time looking at an endless social media scroll. And we, wanted, we thought tech could be part of the solution. So how do we build tech that gets you to look up from your phone and meet real people and discover real memories uh, and engage with the real world? And those are the more valuable memories. So that's, that's everything we do is about people choosing to participate in the system with the goal of making their lives better or their community better. And I'm happy to answer questions on that. So um, this is the part where I'm going to um, challenge a few of you because all of you are exposed to tech every day. 
as a parent, I have three kids. I have a fourth grader and two second graders. All my friends work in technology in Palo Alto, in New York, in San Francisco. And we are worried. If you are a parent and you work in this industry, you limit screen time to your kids. You do not want your kids to have phones too early. And that's a tough thing to say because I'm in this industry. But we, we understand it deeply and how it works. So I have a, a friend um, named Tristan Harris. He went to Stanford. He's from California. He worked at Apple and Google. He was the chief of ethics at Google. Does everyone know what ethics means? Ethics means doing the right thing. It's about, it's a philosophy term. So he was in charge of how to make Google do good things. And he was worried. And he was worried about what he saw because he knew that Google had a supercomputer pointed at your brain. And the human brain has never fought a supercomputer in our history. Uh, so when you wake up in the morning, you have certain goals in your life. But YouTube has one goal, the supercomputer behind YouTube, which is to get you to watch the next video. And they don't care if it's true, or if it's kind, or if it's accurate, or if it's meaningful, or valuable. They just care what you watch. So even if it's a crazy falsehood, if they can hook you, they win. And you have all these goals that you want to accomplish in life. So just, it's your life. Be conscious of this stuff. I love tech, and I think it can bring enormous benefits, but it also can affect your ability to concentrate. Just, there's studies that show that just having a phone on the table, test scores go down, because your brain is subconsciously waiting for that next ping, that next dopamine hit. So, so be careful, it's, it's your life. I encourage our kids, put down the screens after an hour. Go play outside. Build with Legos, play a card game. Go make a 3D printer. Do something that's real. Look, look a friend in the eye. Um, tech is great, but there's time to code. There's time to play video games. The people who do the best in sports and academics over life do not get hooked too early on this stuff. Um, so all of you have to figure out what you want to do when you grow up. How many people know what they want to do when they grow up? Wow. All right, this is a very precocious audience, Angie. Um, very impressive. All right, well, I thought I knew what I was going to do. I had no idea. The reality is none of you really know what you're going to do when you grow up. When I was your age, there were no smartphones. There was no internet when I was a student sitting right there. There was no internet. There was kind of this defense thing, but there was no internet as we know it today. And so there was this, this amazing choice that you have in life. What do you want to be when you grow up? And I think this generation, you all are going to have the chance to live to 100, maybe 125 years old. The technology is going to get better and better. You're going to have many careers. You're going to do lots of different things. People don't want to do the same thing their whole life anymore. So one thing that I, I offer as advice is that because you don't know what you're going to be when you grow up. You just have to do your best at everything, and it will open doors. So I came out of Harvard, and I went to work for this company as a management consultant. And it's a business where you go and you help companies get more efficient. So I was right out of college, and I was back to being bottom of the totem pole. I was a junior analyst. We worked till midnight seven days a week, 
And we were assigned to find cost savings in big corporations. And I kept thinking, what's the meaning in this? There was no communication. There was no sort of respect in the culture. And I vowed if I ever could run a company or build a company, I would build a company where talented people like you were respected and had a voice. And it was transparent and what we call non-hierarchical. So, but I, I did this thing where I said, I don't want to be part of this cog in this machine. I want to go do things that are meaningful. And every decision that I ever made, um, and sorry to the parents in here, my dad hated every good decision I ever made. Um, so, you know, once you're an adult, you have a chance to, to take the safe choice, that high-paying job in New York at a finance firm or whatever, or you can do something you care about. My dad thought I was crazy because I, I turned down all these like high-paying jobs coming out of Oxford and Harvard, and I wanted to do stuff that mattered to me. So I went off um, and worked on Middle East peace um, with Professor Michael Porter in Jordan and Israel and the Palestinian. We were trying to do economic cooperation. Didn't solve it, to your point. Um, and in fact, it was like pushing this rock up a hill, but it was stuff I cared about. I went and worked in Latin America on poverty. Um, my dad thought I was crazy to go live in Colombia I lived in Medellin, Colombia. It was a very violent place, but it was where there was a problem to attack. Um, and then I went to work in the White House, and um, this is me in the cabinet room with Bill Clinton. Um, and, um, and we went on these amazing delegations. This was with Prince Sihanouk in Cambodia. This is trying to negotiate with Hugo Chavez, the, the kind of quasi-dictator slash president of Venezuela, not my favorite guy. Um, and, uh, and, but then I was at the White House and I had a chance to stay and my dad was very proud that I was working at the White House. And I said, you know, I'm quitting and I'm gonna go start an internet company. We have no money and I won't have a salary, but I really wanna do this. Again, dad, bad idea, another bad idea. Um, and so we started this company that sold last minute fun deals and you know, you could wake up in the morning on Friday and go to Miami for the weekend for 200 bucks, flight, hotel, and car. And it just took off and it became a $100 million business in two years from the two of us starting it, my friend Michelle and I. And it was a blast. We got to make change. We got to build the culture we wanted. I worked with amazing people. So as you go out in the world, my advice is, you know what? Feel free to turn down those big jobs and work with people you love and cultures you love and do things you love and take smart risks. Um, so then Travelocity bought our company, and I had this crazy idea with our agency um, that we were going to spend $100 million a year on a kidnapped lawn ornament called the Roaming Gnome. Um, and this is uh, Sir Richard Branson and all these other celebrities love their photos with the gnome. Thank you for all those wonderful photos of the gnome. But, but it was a crazy idea. And again, people told me I was crazy, but it was fun. So how many of you have ever seen the gnome before? Right, and you remember he's the Travelocity gnome, so that's the key. Um, so my last, um, my last words of advice. How many of you have brothers or sisters? Okay, almost everyone. How many of you ever fight with your brothers and sisters? All right, next question. How many fight almost every day with their brother and sister? Okay. I hit a responsive topic, clearly. Um, so my advice is 
you're young, life is long, be good to your family. My, uh, my aunt and uncle are here. Um, my cousin Kim is here, who is a former alumni of the year. These are people who knew me from when I was your age, and it's so incredibly valuable, 38 years later, to have people who really get where you came from. As you go out into the world, you won't have all of these friends all the time. Knowing people deeply is powerful, but someone I wanted to call out um, is my sister, Jen. Uh, so Jen was four years younger than me here at Harbor Day and my best friend throughout life. And, you know, we even, we even like got an apartment together at one point and, um, in Washington, D.C. Having an ally like that is incredible. Um, this is uh, my wife, Amy, in the red hair and my twins and my daughter, Allie. And this is Jen and her husband, Ron, and her two kids. Our kids, we all live in New York. Our kids are best friends uh, together. This is my dad and my mom. I lost my dad a year ago. This, this photo is from two years ago. I lost my dad almost exactly a year ago. Jen is the person I could turn to who understood those missing him every day and all the funny stories from our family and all of the things that were crazy about our family and all the, the, the things that shaped us and having that ally is so valuable that when you are tempted to scream and punch your brother and sister over did they get the bigger cupcake than you or who gets to go first on something, remember your siblings are the people who should be on your team your whole life. And these little things, they won't really matter. So next time, just try to be generous and be the bigger person because it'll matter more 38 years later whether you're still best friends with your siblings. So I just want to sum up my, my lessons here for you and then we can take some questions. So, you know, Harbor Day School had a pretty big impact on my life and the lessons you can tell I still think about all the time so here's my lessons for you. Watch out for each other. Practice empathy. Next time you notice a friend is feeling down or lonely or excluded, go reach out to them. Never, go, never ever give up and do the extra credit. And it's for you, not, not for a grade or a prize. It's for you to be the best you, you can be. And then remember, when you grow up, you will have opportunities that Sitting here, we can't even imagine, you know, what it will be. Running a colony on Mars, who knows what it will be. But the best way to prepare is doing your best at every stage of your life, and doors will open, and life will be an adventure. So thanks for having me here today. I'm honored. Thank you very much. Oh, standing, oh, oh, thank you. Standing out and it started by a first grader, Dan. Um, Mr. Glick said he can take a few questions. So without talking, if you have a pertinent question about anything you heard today, just raise your hand silently. And let's see. Who is out there with a question? Caden. I agree that Google is a monopoly. Oh, okay. 
Do I agree that Google is a monopoly? Um, I think with a 90% share of search, it is certainly a monopoly. Um, I'm not a big fan of breaking it up, but I would like to see privacy legislation in the United States. And in fact, we're preparing to go to Washington and argue for um, limitations on how Google uses the data that it collects on people and that you should be in control. So it's a great, great question. Leela. Did, did I have technology when I was in school? Well, we didn't have a lot. We didn't have the iPads that you have and all of that. We had, do you, if you go into the computer lab, there is an old Macintosh there that's a 128K Macintosh. That is a more advanced computer than what we had. We had what was called a TRS-80. So I used to, has anyone ever seen the game Pong? It's like really simple little dot moving across a television screen. That was the level of computers that we had here. So I learned to code here in that computer lab, um, and, I, and it, was, it was amazing. But <laughs> the computers in your pocket are literally a million times more powerful than the stuff we had when I was a student here. All right, last question. So if you have something that you think might be... Eva. You know, that's a great question. What did I, I, the internet and mobile phones didn't exist, as I said, so I thought maybe I wanted to, to go into public policy, and I studied politics at Harvard and Oxford and international economics. I thought I, at one point I wanted to be an architect. I love to build things. Um, and I also, you know, thought about working in a nonprofit for causes. And the, the funny thing is, um, all those, I worked on lots of good things, one of the reasons I loved business, as you heard, is there was a chance to make a difference and an impact on the world and do so without waiting for permission from the powers that be. And so just if you ever think about becoming an entrepreneur, it's an amazing experience because you get to test your creative ideas on the world and see if people like them or not. And it's, it's a really free, wonderful thing about living in America. We, we in California in particular and in the coast have opportunities to, I'm, I just have to say one more thing. Like, literally, in my dad's generation, people went to work for one company for 40 years. And um, I was 29 years old, starting a $100 million company. And it's an incredible thing in America. It's not present anywhere else except to some extent in China right now. That you, as a 25-year-old, can go ask for $10 million from an investor and go try to build an idea that has never existed throughout history. You live at such an interesting time. So to prepare yourself, though, think about those lessons about character and logic and humanity just as much as you think about your technical skills if you want to do something like that. Because that's what's brought me through my 20 years in tech. So thank you very much for the invitation today. <laughs>